Hey, everybody, and welcome to the NFL Road Show post week four edition or midweek four edition, I suppose. We still have one game left tonight Rams Niners in the Bay Area. The other 15 games, though, are in the books. And they leave us with just one undefeated team. We're looking at the Eagles as the lone undefeated team at 4-0. One winless team left, Houston, 0-3-1. No one is 0-4 thanks to that Raiders win over Denver. New England, notably alone in last place in the AFC East. Though I'll be honest, they impressed me yesterday, taking Green Bay to overtime with a rookie fourth rounder in in relief at quarterback. The Chiefs win. Also huge in week four against Tampa Bay, which falls to two and two and into a tie for first in the NFC South with Atlanta, which got a great rushing game out of Caleb Huntley, a practice squad call up who they will probably have to lean on a little bit more moving forward because Cordero Patterson is going to miss at least four weeks. He had a procedure done this morning to the knee that's been bothering him and they put him on IR Also notable at running back, Javante Williams, out for the season, not just on IR, out for the year with a massive knee injury. Not only did he tear his ACL, but according to Ian Rappaport, he tore all the L's. Uh, His LCL, his PCL, just awful. So for now, it's looking like it will be Melvin Gordon primarily in that backfield, and he has had some issues this year with fumbling, so hopefully he can work through those because the Denver Broncos are going to need him to. Jonathan Taylor's x-rays on his ankle apparently were negative. So according to Adam Schefter, he has a chance to play Thursday against the Broncos. That's a pretty short turnaround. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't, but we'll see. Um, Secondarily, he didn't look that good in the game prior to the injury. He was averaging like two yards a carry. So... The Colts have some issues that they need to work through. Um, elsewhere in that conference, they are going to have to make some adjustments in the passing game because Traylon Burks has turf toe. Median return to play time in the NFL for that injury is 28 days. That's how long it took for Devontae Adams to come back when he was dealing with a turf toe injury. And I tell you what, this injury feels particularly damaging to this Titans offense. They had a net passing yardage total of 116 in that game against the Colts on Sunday. Weirdly, somehow still a win for the Titans. Well, not somehow. It's because Derrick Henry actually looked like Derrick Henry again. He rushed 22 times for 114 yards and a touchdown, and they needed every last yard of those that he put on the board because from a receiving standpoint, their leading receiver had 38 yards. Their second leading receiver was Derrick Henry with 33 yards. Luckily, Robert Woods kind of looked a little bit unlocked. He had four catches on four targets, 30 yards, and a touchdown. That touchdown really put him over the top. If not for that, then, you know, I don't know what I'm looking at here from a passing game standpoint. But again, no Traylon Burks for them for a little while. Unfortunately, we also have a concussion controversy in Tampa Bay. The second time in one week that we're talking about this type of concussion controversy in the NFL. Uh, You all know about what happened with Tua last week. This week, it's Cameron Brait, who is now in the concussion protocol after being allowed to re-enter the game after a concussion, I'm sorry, a collision with Chris Godwin. So not only did he re-enter the game, by the way, he was targeted three times after he re-entered the game before they realized that he had a concussion and took him out of the game. So how does this happen? In this week of all weeks, you ask, here's what Todd Bowles says. Um, He said that Brake came to the sideline after the collision and he complained about shoulder discomfort. He says that he didn't say anything about his head, which to a degree feels slightly irrelevant, right? That's the point of the whole wider conversation that we can't rely on the players to call out head injuries. But either way, Bowles says that Brait was checked out three times. Don't know what that means. Like, did they check him for a concussion three times or did they check his shoulder three times? Because if the point is we didn't know that he had a head injury, why would you check him for a head injury? Three times, no less. But again, either way, he said... To give him a minute, Bright did. Like, I need a minute. Nothing came up. So he went back in the game. And then at halftime, 
he started displaying symptoms of a concussion and started complaining about those symptoms. And so they tested him and put him in the concussion protocol and he didn't go back in the game again. So clearly we have some issues with the way that this whole thing is working. And I certainly don't have the answers because the ways that a player could suffer concussion that aren't glaringly obvious are plentiful. Like an offensive lineman, for instance, who takes on higher frequency, lower impact type jarring. That ultimately leads to concussive-like symptom. Concussion? Concussive? I don't even know if that's a word. It ultimately leads to things like dizziness, stuff like that. So a spotter isn't going to see that, so that's tough. In this case, the spotter apparently didn't see this one either. Bowles says the spotter did not call down to the field to have Brait checked on, despite the fact that there actually was a collision that may have indicated to some that he should be looked at. Uh, Bowles also said something that I wish that he hadn't, frankly, on Monday. He said, quote, you can't see a neurologist or talk about concussions if you're only complaining about your shoulder. All right, A, Studies show that players are at least hesitant to report symptoms because of the employment ramifications. And B, in this case, it sounds like the symptoms were delayed, not unreported, which again brings us back to things being complicated. And also why this whole conversation, I think, is just so worthwhile to have. I think it's interesting that the people who interacted with Tua during the week last week said that he seemed fine. We heard Ryan Fitzpatrick on the Amazon postgame show saying that he sat down with him the day before and Tua had seemed totally normal. These things are worth talking about because I certainly understand someone thinking, look, dude, if I don't see any symptoms, then it's impossible for me to diagnose anything. But then maybe that's why we should think about just taking people out of a game for a while just because we saw a big hit that is worth hitting the pause button for, to wait and see if something develops after that. Maybe we need to do that. I'd be interested to know how many concussions don't have obvious symptoms like headaches or blurred vision or light sensitivity. I'm sure the numbers are out there, but I don't know them. That said, the obvious dilemma here is there will be times, if that is what we do, where people who are not concussed are taken out of games, and it leads to a competitive imbalance. Like the Julian Edelman hit from Super Bowl Forty Nine, as an example. ton of people thought he was concussed on the outside. He wasn't looked at. Uh, it seemed like nobody batted an eye in the game. He went right back in. He was treated like he was fine. Meanwhile, a lot of people on the outside kind of lost their minds. Like, this is exactly what we're talking about. Take a look at him because he was showed the kind of instability on the field that would lead people to be worried. To this day, he insists that he did not have a concussion and he didn't have a head injury, that his instability was because he had a hip injury and someone earlier in the game had hit him on his hip. So let's say that was the case in spite of him wobbling on the field, looking like he was concussed. Let's say that that was because of a hip injury. What if we had taken him out of that game to be safe? And then he wasn't there to score the game-winning touchdown in a Super Bowl. So again, I say, it's complicated. Not complicated, the status of Tua this week. He is out for this week's game against the Jets, already ruled that way to no one's surprise. So we will see Teddy Bridgewater versus Zach Wilson on the Sunday of week five. Zach Wilson, who completed 50% of his passes in his first game of the year, a win against the Steelers, who also unveiled a new quarterback midway through that game. Our first look at Kenny Pickett, the first quarterback taken in April's draft out of the same school that our guest today attended. It's former Pitt Panther Doug Whaley who worked in NFL front offices for 20-plus years for the Steelers, Seahawks, and most recently for the Bills, where he was, of course, the general manager from 2013 to 2017. Since then, you may have heard him on Sirius XM Radio, and he's also done a lot of work with the XFL, which is coming back this February, and we will talk to him about that, see what might be different this time around, in his opinion, as Senior Vice President of Player Personnel. First, though, I would, of course, love to get his opinions on the games that we just watched yesterday in the NFL. So let's break the huddle and welcome him in. Hello, let's go! Welcome, welcome, Doug. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Excited to have a couple minutes with you. 
talk yeah. some football, right? Let's talk some football. Um, I'm assuming that you watched the games yesterday. You said you just got off a red eye. So I understand that you've been on the move here. What did you think of these uh, week four games? I feel like I say this every year and every week, right? Like everything I think I know, it just feels like it gets thrown out the window. Like what, what happened? Lions, Lions and Seahawks putting up 90 come up. Like, what are we doing here? Like who would have ever predicted that? I thought that the 48 point total, I was like, go under on that one. Like, I feel like I know nothing anymore. Well, that's why sports is the best reality TV out there. Cause you never know what's going to happen. You can't script some of these things. And like you said, for them to throw up 90 plus points, what are we doing here? But it points to how atrocious Detroit's defense is. I know. And it's like, wait a minute, they're on historic levels. These things are people, they're going to go down in history. You're talking, we, we're, we just saw Aaron Judge tie a record. People are going to be shooting a tie Detroit's record in a bad way. So, and, and you're talking about a team that as much as they are in games and they fight and they bite kneecaps and all that stat, stuff, they're just not good enough to win. And that, that, that's where it goes to a lot of people think effort equals production. And the Detroit Lions, it shows you right there. I don't care how ornery you are and how tough you are and everything. After a while, you got to have skill. And they just don't have the skill. Where are they lacking the skill? Like, how far away are we? Because clearly the defense, I agree with you, right? Like, we're at a point here where if they, Dan Orlovsky tweeted earlier today, if they even had a bad defense, they would be a great football team. Like, uh, they're really bad on the defensive side of the ball. And we all know the, the, the moves that they've made on the offensive side of the ball, like they're putting up points. They look great. You, you gotta love the fact they put up 48 points in a game. No, I'm sorry. They put up 45 points. Seahawks put up 48. They put up 45 points in a game where you took away DeAndre Swift and Amonra St. Brown and DJ Chark. Like that was a big part of my under. I was like, who, who's going to do anything for these guys? Any. They looked great. So offensively, they've made strides. Where where are they lacking? Like, what are the next steps in terms of this roster rebuild? Well, let me ask you this. Hmm. Who's getting after the quarterback? Yes. Well, they, but they, you, I mean, that's where they went <laughs> that, this year in the draft, right? Aiden. Yes. Aiden, but you, that's all you have. So everybody can force the line, move the slide, the line, double team them, chip them. He needs more help. And to have a successful defense nowadays, because it's a passing league, you have to affect the passer. You have to get that passer off the spot. And if you can't do that, or if you only have one person that's a threat to do that, the offensive coordinator at night is going to bed instead of 12 and one o'clock, he's going to bed at 10. I know how to stop their best guy. So let's not overthink it. Now, to their, to their credit, their back end has stepped up and played well. I just I would really have to look more at the all 22 to find out schematically. Is it the biggest issue or is it personnel, especially against the run? I I said last week because I've been a big Lions honk. I can't believe we started with Lions Seahawks. This was not my intention here, but, you know, it was an interesting game this week. Um, I said last week, look, I'll shut up about the Lions people if they lose to the Seahawks. I'm taking that back because the offense is still so good. So I will, I will slow my roll because the defense is going to continue to hold them back in terms of getting wins, but like, they're just right there in all these games. And if I told you Jarrett Goff was not going to be the reason you're losing at the right? beginning of the year, you would have been like, I'll take that bet. Goff is gonna, uh-huh. He's going to be supplanted by somebody. Well, another thing that I would not have believed if you had told me at the beginning of the year was that, Geno Smith was going to um, throw for 320 yards in a game this year that they were going to win the way that they did because so yes, they ran the ball more than they threw it barely 32 to 30, but Geno Mm -hmm. Smith threw the ball 30 freaking times and completed 23 of those passes. And again, not for like 190 yards on a bunch of check downs. He threw for 320 yards. Do we all owe Pete Carroll an apology? I think you do. I think you owe not only Pete Carroll, but John Schneider. For me, I thought they were going to go. I thought they're thinking what's happening next in my, in our quarterback lineage in this franchise. And that's the quarterbacks that are coming out 
in next year, Jack, CJ Stroud, you know, Boyd, all these guys that are coming out. And I was just at the USC game and Caleb Williams, that's a guy that's exciting. So then maybe they're thinking, all right, there's a good group of not just one, but there's the three or four that we throw Gino out there. And if we, if we lose, we're in position not to give up extra draft capital to pick one of these guys, even though they do have a lot of draft capital, then have freedom to move where they want to in the next year's draft. So that's my thought. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll give the company line. We believe in Gino. We believe in hoping that he fails. Now, all of a sudden, this guy's got him in the hunt of things. So it's a win-win. Now they can say if Gino ends up being our guy and not, and I don't know if you remember when he was coming out, it was in, in the draft, it was slow eyes Gino. Well, Gino's eyes just sped up for the Seattle Seahawks, put, like I said, but puts them in a great position. Now they can start saying, if we have a quarterback, we don't have to use all that draft capital to maneuver to get one of these top guys. We can use it to surround him with people. Do you think that there's that that that's actually not likely to happen, but that that's actually in the range of possibilities that they leave this season, even if Gino plays well? and say, Gino's our guy moving forward. We're going to build around him rather than look to upgrade. I would hope not, mm-hmm. but depends on how Gino finishes the season. If he turns in a Kurt Warner, if he turns in a Tom Brady, you, what are you going to, a Rich Gannon type season? Are you, you know what I mean? Now, what they can do, though, would still be protect themselves and not maybe get one of those top rated college quarterbacks, but get a guy in the second, third round, somebody that has an upside that needs some seasoning. So that's where I would think they would go if Gino turns the world on fire. You mentioned Caleb Williams. I'm a USC person. So I'm, I, I want to ask you a follow-up question about that in terms of quarterback scouting, evaluating. He has been incredible this season. I mean, prior to this season, but I'm a USC person. So it's really popped on my radar this year. He's been incredible. Then he was bad against Oregon State. And I wondered as as that game was taking place, how many quarterbacks in the NFL have had games in college that were that bad? Like where you put on tape, something that was just awful. Do, do you have any recollection of examples like that? How worrisome is it to have a game that's that off? Hmm. It's well, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. It is something that you put, in your total evaluation resume on the, on the fella, you're like, all right. But then you start really investigating two things. Why did it happen? And a lot of times that's going to the player and having those personal workouts and, the, and an interview and say, what happened? Cause it could have been as easy as his dog died that week and he just mm-hmm. couldn't handle it or something that is out side of the football realm affected him but the other thing you want to do is see how he responds to this game so is he going to be able to put that turn that switch off compartmentalize and move on so that that's to me and that's why I think when you're really evaluating quarterbacks you have to go see him live because you can see a microcosm this during a game he throws a pick when he comes back over the sideline who's he talking to is he trying to get everybody else's focused like him? Is he going to the OC, the head coach? Do they have words? All right, well, maybe they go two, three and outs. Is he the one gathering those guys up? So you start to see these leadership qualities and what he's all made about as a quarterback. And that's what I would like to see because you want to see them coming out of adversity. So, and how they respond. The, the one player I can think of, and it wasn't a bad game, the quarterback was Teddy Bridgewater's pro day that thing i'm telling you this much my eight-year-old daughter could have looked better at at the throwing the football than that day and that was just one of those things where you're like okay but unfortunately he didn't have anything to show us what how he could respond to that now some people may we weren't in the quarterback market at that time but some people had some personal workouts and i hope and i heard that he threw better in minnesota obviously uh, he had one then and he convinced them, but that was the one person where I'm scratching my head like, wait a minute, I've been doing this for a long time. Did I not just see what I saw in tape, but then, then this, so it was really flabbergasting. 
You know who's impressed me in that regard this year? Jalen Hurts. Not necessarily the adversity, but the leadership. I mean, as mm-hmm. you're sitting there talking about situations and like when you just see the type of behavior in certain situations, Jalen Hurts has risen to the occasion this season. And obviously they've put people around him, but we were all still asking going into the year, like, okay, here are all of the weapons. Like it, we're going to get a good read on you as a quarterback. I feel like so far he's passed the test with flying colors. Do you feel like we are now at a point where we know, or is there still evaluation to be had on him? Here's the reason why I think he is for real. Look at his career in college. Gets surplanted at Alabama, handles it like a professional, does not go into the tank, transfers to Oklahoma, and performs at a high level. You know who else did that? Russell Wilson went from NC State unceremoniously told to leave, goes to Wisconsin, and before the summer's over, he's only there maybe three, four weeks, gets voted captain, takes Wisconsin there. And I'll give you one last one, Tom Brady. He, think about this, when he was at Michigan, who did they have Drew Henson coming in to take his job? And that everybody wanted him to acquiesce and get beat out by Drew Henson. And what I, the point being is, when you look at those three, it's that Jalen's on that trajectory. And I'm not saying physically. They're totally three different physical specimens playing the game. But what they all have is that never stay die. I don't care who's you bring in to beat me out or if you doubt me, I'm going to prove you wrong. But I got such self-confidence. It's not arrogance. It's not a chip on the shoulder. And for me, being playing football, being in a huddle, and knowing football players, if you've got a quarterback that comes in and says, I got this, follow me, that's when you're like, hell yeah, let's step it up for my guy. And that's what I see in Jalen Hurts. You mentioned Russell Wilson in that list of people from a leadership standpoint. Do you think that from what you see um, in terms of leadership, his style at this point in his career. Cause early on, I think it's one thing. I think he's the type of person we've heard this about Pete Carroll before about like the rah-rah, how it kind of can get a little bit stale and starts to feel inauthentic. I kind of think that that's what I feel when I watch Russell Wilson now is that I don't know if I'm buying it anymore. Now, if you're building a roster around that, do you have concerns about his like, or do you think, yeah, that's the way to approach this? Um, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it from a Russell Wilson standpoint, but there's just something that doesn't feel like authentic to me in a way that would land if I was one of his teammates. He's not for everybody. And what I would say is when he was young, he didn't have to be a leader. He had the Legion of Doom and it was the defense. So Russ could be quiet and not looked upon and the spotlight was on his play and not his leadership because everybody knew who was running the team. And that's what when Ben Roethlisberger, when I was with the Steelers, early in his career, it was the defense. You know, mm-hmm. we, they, we were winning because of Jerome uh, running the ball and the defense, and Ben just threw in some plays. And granted, he threw in some nice plays, but he wasn't counted on to be a leader. And that same with Russell Winston. Now, when you transition, Russell's personality and his style is not that quiet, confidence, assured guy with a type A Superman on his chest like Cam, he's more of that intellectual, let me find out what makes you tick and get you uplift your spirit type guy. Mm-hmm. And that, that it doesn't play with everybody. But here's the key. You can be a leader. I don't care what type of personality you are, as long as you're producing. And I think that where there's a rub, I think in Seattle, they started to see a slip in production with that same mentality and trying to make that transition as a team to the new Seattle Seahawks, getting rid of the old and the new. I think that's why they're like probably best for us to get as much as we can. And this is what makes me think about them looking at quarterbacks in this draft, get as much draft ammunition as we can unload Russell and let's turn the page. Do you think that the Broncos um, will get the Russell that they were hoping for when they signed him to that contract there in Denver? Knowing Nathaniel Hackett the way they will get that very cerebral, very calculated quarterback because his offensive system, if it hasn't changed since when I was with him in Buffalo, 
is very scientific and precise. And I'm sure Russell can buy into that and perform exactly the way Nathaniel wants him to perform. My question is, is his skill level still at that level for what they gave up to him, what they committed to him, and his long-range potential? Because when have, let me ask you this, when have you seen a highly performing quarterback still in what his 30s get traded away from a team that's took him to Super Bowls? There's got to be, there's got to be a reason why, right? Yeah. So that's, that's the question that should be asked. What about Nathaniel Hackett's old team, the Packers? Am I, am I wrong for, I feel like when I watch them play, I just am not feeling it. And yet they have, um, again, Dan Orlovsky threw up this stat today. They're second in the NFL in explosive plays. Never in a million years would I, if you had asked me like, who do you think this team is? I wouldn't have answered Green Bay at all. Um, do you think that that's a team that you see putting it together this year and being a contender in the NFC? Because in all the power rankings, everybody keeps putting, you know, Green Bay and Tampa Bay, regardless of what we've seen in the early going, they're like, that's, those are the teams, Rams too, right? Like those three at the top of the rankings, um, according to everybody. Uh, I don't feel like in Tampa's case, I kind of get it because you have these really strong pass catchers who haven't been on the field because of injuries. So, and we all know you put those guys with Tom Brady and, It'll click at some point. It's fine. And the defense is good. I'm not sure that I know as much about Green Bay. What What are your thoughts and your projections for Green Bay moving forward this year? Like always, they're going to be probably, I, I say they win their division. They're going to be, I would say, if not second, third seed at worst, go out like flames in the, in the playoffs. To me, Green Bay is like my Pittsburgh Penguins. It's not what you do in the regular season. It's what are you doing in the playoffs and what have you done for me lately in the playoffs? And Aaron Rodgers, I've always thought he, when he gets done, they're going to have a course on how he was a master manipulator of the, his narrative in the media. Think about it this way. Last year when he had Devontae Adams, he was upset with the front office about him not being involved in their decisions and everything. He loses Devontae Adams, but gets $50 million a year. You don't hear him saying anything about the front office. That's a coincidence. Think about this against Tampa Bay when they went to the Super Bowl. Tampa Bay had three turnovers in the second half, and they still ended up losing. But again, he switches it. Well, I'm upset now because of the front office. My point being to me, my point being is I think Aaron Rodgers has the skill set to overcome what their deficiencies are. But I like what I saw last yesterday with that running game, that two headed monster with the running game with Dylan really showing that he can be that power back, which is going to translate to later in the season when it gets colder. And by that time, that coldness and that NFC North frozen tundra games starts to wear on people and people start making business decisions. And while that's happening, I think these receivers are going to start to be able to produce at a consistent level and not make those drops in special situations because they'll start getting more comfortable. And Aaron's going to say, we're going to need you down the stretch. I just don't think Aaron's going to be able to do it once he gets in the playoffs. How do you see the NFC right now? I think we all went into the season thinking the best teams in the NFL are on the AFC side. Mm-hmm. Um, the Eagles have looked very good. And I think you can make a strong argument for them. And it certainly starts with the fact that they've beaten every team that you've put in front of them. They're the only undefeated team left in the NFL. So it, you probably have to start your NFC conversation with Philadelphia. How do you see it stacking up after that? Oh, I'd say right now I'd go... Philly, I'm still, I'd I'd go Green Bay, I'd go Rams, I'd go, and Rams I have questions uh, about. Uh, They're going to be hot and cold. To me, with the way they're constructed, I'm really interested to see how they are going to be performing in November and December. When you say the way they're constructed, what are you referring to? 
older guys, veteran guys that have some tread on the tire and and are long in the tooth, playing such a long season last year, going all the way to the Super Bowl. This is really going to be important to Sean McVay and his performance staff to make sure he keeps them ripe for peaking in those months that are the playoff push. So that's where I think it's going to be interesting. And I'm excited to see, but with the advancements in performance and sports science, I think it should, they should be able to do it, but that's just something to, to keep an eye on. And then after that, I, I don't want to say the Giants, but I'm saying the way Dallas is playing, you got to throw Dallas in that. The fact that they're three and one without Dak, like, hey, Dak is going to be gone. And then by the by the time he comes back, they're still in the race. I think that you have to find that at least notable, right? Oh, are you Absolutely. talking about with the way that the Cowboys are playing, that the Giants become contenders? No, no, I'm saying I, I'm giving the Giants some props because I think Byron Dayball is doing great with it. But, but got it. Okay, Dallas, that's what I thought it, you meant. Uh, yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I'm. That to me, we can talk about Brian Dayball being coach of the year because what you saw, what he did with Josh Allen, and I'm not saying Daniel Jones is the same as Josh Allen, but he is playing improved and Saquon's back to Saquon and they have that attitude and that little bit of swagger that coach Dayball has. I like what he's doing. They're not there yet, but to me in the NFL, when you talk about a backup quarterback, the description in the NFL Bible says, keep us 50, 50, just win half your games, no matter how long you start. So when you have a Cooper rush that is above 50, 500, you are playing with house money and people start to believe not only they're galvanizing behind that around that backup quarterback that gives them that confidence to say, we love the backup. That's great. But when our guy gets back, he's going to springboard us way more than Cooper rush can. And this is just building confidence. And, and I, that's why I think that Dallas is going to be someone to contend on as long as Mike McCarthy doesn't sabotage him. <laughs> <laughs> I got you to laugh. <laughs> that's a big, that's a big uh, if and asterisk that we're adding to that situation. No doubt. Yes. Ugh. Yes, indeed. Is it me or does Cooper Rush look exactly like Jason Garrett? Like, oh, I they, didn't think about that. I have to check it out. He did a sit down with Aaron Andrews that was running in the pregame shows yesterday. And I was like, it's like, she's talking to Jason Garrett. It's weird. And um, also sidebar. Uh, Zappy in New England looks exactly like Mac Jones. I did it's see like that. Full yes. on doppelganger. What's happening I... here? You did not mention Tampa, by the way, in your list of NFC teams. Did did we just like lose track of them, or was that purposeful? That was purposeful. Okay. Have you? Let me ask you this. Even way back when Tom Brady came back from his hiatus, he just looked like a beaten uninterested man and when i saw him getting off the ground the turf last night and they zoom in on that face you used to see a fired up like and he was going to go over and talk to somebody and somebody was going to get the business for him being on the ground not now it's just like uh, he just so i and maybe i'm reading too much into it maybe it's just me or maybe i'm just saying this because i i at some point he's got to fall off the cliff I just think, to me, he just comes off totally uninterested and unplugged. What do you think? Yeah, I, I see that. I feel like it's freaking Brady. Like at some point, when you get those guys back out there, I feel like I'm I'm waiting for this to to click. And I know that I'm not giving Aaron Rodgers that same um, long leash to a degree, but I but that's largely because of the pass catchers in Tampa Bay who are proven. If Chris Godwin, I mean, I hate seeing him come back and then go to the sideline again, come back and go to the sideline again. Like, I just want that guy out on the field. Like, it's better for the NFL if Evans and Godwin and Tampa Bay has all of those weapons and we can see Tom Brady go out on top. I just, I guess for me, narratively, I can't, I can't envision a scenario where that isn't the way that, and I'm not saying Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl, but I'm saying like this, this is not what I envisioned for Tom Brady's last year. Right now, I'm, it, it's looking like, for the reasons that you said, like, it just doesn't look like the fire is there. And that this year is turning out the way that I think he had envisioned when he said, sure, I'll come back. 
I, I think I'd be surprised if this wasn't it for Tom Brady. I, I'm with you. I mean, if I, if I'm going on FanDuel, I'm betting this is definitely it. And to me, I'm going out there bold prediction. I'm betting they don't make the playoffs. Don't make the playoffs. Don't make the playoffs. Bold prediction. You heard even it with that first. defense, which I realize, right. you know, <laughs> didn't look like that defense last night. Right. And with that, and if you cannot score, I don't know. I haven't looked lately what their scoring offense is, Tampa. But if you're put, and in time of possession, if you're putting that defense as great as that defense is out there that long your margin for error is slim you got to be able to score and keep your defense off and they just haven't been doing either true story what do you think is is a valid takeaway for the bills in the last couple of weeks so i look at them as a team that played a very good team last week on their turf in their conditions with a really banged up defense and still put up 400 plus yards of offense. I think they played another very good team yesterday and far from ideal conditions with fewer injuries than the week before, but still quite a few injuries. Uh, And they of course won that game. And there will be people I've heard people in fact say that it's a little bit concerning that they faced a Ravens defense that had been the worst in the league against the pass. And that Josh Allen of all people goes 19 for 36 in that game with 213 passing yards, just 213 passing yards. What do you think is a fair takeaway from these last few weeks for Buffalo, in your opinion? All right, I'm going to go stats on you. Oh, since do it. Week, since week one of 2021, the Bills were 0-7 in one-score games. Now they're 1-7. So what that triggers to me is they are starting to get that confidence and that belief, and maybe this triggers when the game is tight, we can do it. We're not, we're not the same old Bills. So I think this is a learning experience, especially from the week before and what happened in Miami. To be able to crawl back and erase a deficit in a hostile environment, in one of the toughest places, not only to play, but one of the toughest teams to do it against. It answers that question of physicality. When people still were wondering that New England game when they ran 45 times, are the Bills really that physical? If you line up and smash them in the mouth, can you do it? Well, we did it at Baltimore. And then the ability to know we're in a one-score game, we can get it done. So I think this, in my opinion, it's going to be a positive and maybe propel them to further down the road, especially in the playoffs when things are going to get tight. What do you, what, where do you stand on the Ravens controversy coming out of that game yesterday? A lot of people who wanted them to take the points rather than go for it on a fourth and two at the two. Fourth and two at the two, you got arguably the MVP. You have consistently said, this is what we're going to do. And this is what we're all about. I have no issue. There's a difference between being aggressive and being arrogant. I like aggressiveness. That to me was not an arrogant move. My thought is like, and he throws an interception. Like that's, that's the guy you want with the ball in your hand. I mean, I, I could see the argument being more like why throw the ball there potentially, uh, but that doesn't seem like people weren't irate about the play call. They were irate about the decision-making like to just not take the points versus go for it anyway. But Baltimore took over. Um, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, Buffalo took over with 409. Like that's yeah. when that happened. They promptly marched down the field to get to the one with 102 left. They're at the one yard line. With 102 left, Buffalo is they took two knees to run time off the clock and then kicked a field goal. If Baltimore had kicked a field goal, now Buffalo would have had that time. They would have used those two plays to try and score from the one with three timeouts. Like, I don't understand. This feels to me to to a degree. It feels a little bit like revisionist history just because it Mm -hmm. worked out the way that it worked out. I don't I don't get the outrage myself. Well, what I would be more outraged with and if I was a Ravens fan would be your defense that just gave up a drive for, for 98 yards. Mm-hmm. That, that to me, it's not like they didn't get it and they were in their own territory and it set them up for a short field and a field goal. You're at home. You're trying to be recognized as one of the best teams in the AFC. To be the best, you beat the best. And if right. that means getting two yards, that means getting two yards. If that means not getting the two yards, taking up for your 
offense and have a defense that's not going to let somebody run 98 yards down the field when you need a stop yep. to win the game. That's and and that's sometimes the self-evaluation you need as a team, especially early in the season. It used to be quarters. So this is week four. This is the first quarter. So what are we all about? You take a day or two and do some self-reflection and say, well, that right there tells us when it times comes, our defense needs to get better, to get stouter. So these types, they're learning things. And you, you hate to say you, you win from losing, but at least you now you know what you're all about in certain situations. And that's situational football that they may not get again, get in again until later in the season, but it might be that last game that gets you into the playoffs or gets you that that first place in your division. So that's a learning experience. That's what I would take away from it. Well, stay in the AFC North. I'm curious to get your thoughts about the Steelers turning to pick it when they did. Do you feel like that was the right time to make that move? I think unless you were going to wait until next year, there was uh, it, the only other right time would have been start them in the season. So to me, I'm going to look at it this way. There was a report and he said that he didn't get any reps during the year, during the week mm-hmm. uh, with the first team. Right. And everybody's up in the arms about that. I'm going to give you my, I'll let, I'll ask your take and I'll give you my take after that. What do you think about that? Throwing him in, knowing he did not take any first team reps during the week. I don't blame them for throwing him in under the circumstances, If, but I do think, uh, and I hadn't seen that. I do think that you have to be planning for this, right? Like, I know that Tomlin has been saying adamantly, like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. But at some point you kind of have to know that that's at least on our radar, but I don't know. I don't know. I thought he looked good under the circumstances. Like knowing that I, I, I think he actually looked a lot better. So my thought process, everybody like, why didn't you give him reps to me? It's a brilliant move for the coach and the psyche of the quarterback not give him one rep in the, during the week, obviously in the meeting, so then thrown in the deep end, swing, sink or swim. And he, he doggy paddled. I wouldn't say he swam, but think about this. I mean, 10 Next, of 13, I mean, throw all three of the incompletions were interceptions. I get that, but <laughs> no, no, he bought it. He, yeah. Like I said, he doggy paddled. He didn't, he didn't sink and he yeah. did some really good things. But my point being is, Think of the confidence he'll have and the team will have if he gets a whole week of being the man. So yeah. that's a brilliant way to really have that chest move and saying, oh, everybody's going to give me grief. But everybody now knows this guy can come in cold and give a spark to our team. Think of the spark that he's going to have and the belief of his teammates that they're going to have. Like this dude didn't even practice and he did this. I think it's a brilliant move. To a degree, though, that's hindsight, right? Like, what if you didn't give him any reps and then you threw your future franchise quarterback into the deep end and he sank? What if he sank? Built, built in an excuse. Young guy, we didn't give him reps. That's on me. Sorry. Okay. I didn't do a good enough coach. I mean, Coach Tom, I did not do a good enough time, job to get this guy prepared for battle. Oh, and the fans would have definitely quieted then. There you go. <laughs> mm. But no, but it gives them excuse. Then you can go in and say, right. see, young man, now you know what to expect. And then that motivates him harder to be uh, more diligent and work harder in the week of pre- preparation for the next game. How much do you think what they've been doing in terms of how they've handled him so far this season has been about managing expectations? Mark Dominic was on the podcast two weeks ago, and he said that he thought that they were probably waiting for it to become like overwhelming within the fan base. Like we would like to make this turn to Kenny Pickett because then you have the fans kind of like having ownership of this decision. And then they give him a longer leash to grow rather than immediately out of the gate, you throw Kenny Pickett into this situation and the fans have not yet put themselves in that position where they wanted it to happen. And then they go, you drafted this bum, you know, and it puts a lot more pressure on him out of the gate. I I think I'll tell you what I think they did. And I'll tell you my biggest concern and what I would have done. Okay. I think it was a little bit of, like you said, 
not not managing expectations of not only the fan base, but the expectation on the organization. Why not push that start back and equip him with as much tools to be as successful as possible? And that's learning how to be a professional quarterback. Simple as learning how to study tape. What are you looking at when you're looking and you're breaking down a team? What are you looking at in the secondary, the line, all of that, knowing line calls, being able to regurgitate tape that to a huddle. So things like that, let's arm him and equip him, even though that was the thing that he was most known for, the most pro-ready. But let's see what we can do with Mitch. If Mitch falls on his face, then he's had at least some time to ingratiate himself in the nuances of being a NFL quarterback. My thing is I wouldn't have not thrown him in there. I would have sank with Mitch Trubisky because I, myself, am not a believer in Matt Canada. This guy, to me, is unqualified. And why would I want my future quarterback, franchise quarterback, to be under this his tutelage and learn from him when I would, what I would want him replaced the next year? I don't know if Coach Tomlin's going to, but this guy, think about it. The last time he coordinated a successful offense was 2015 in ACC at Pitt. And that's why, and I'll bring it full circle, where Kenny Pickett, has will have a long leash even if he goes out for the next 10 games and throws 20 interceptions because he's a pit guy. So he has that long leash. They don't have to worry about that. But Canada, I just personally don't think you need to put that guy over top of Kenny when you're trying to have a franchise quarterback for a while. How much do you think that that happens around the league? Because we saw that with Trevor Lawrence last year, obviously with Urban Meyer. Now in retrospect, people are like, whoa, maybe he can actually play (laughs) Uh, this season. How much do you think that happens where people are just in bad situations and then we get an evaluation and it it all goes away and it really sometimes has nothing to do with them? It's circumstances and and it can go both ways. Uh, There's circumstances why... uh, a couch goes to Cleveland and he gets sacked so many times. Was he a bad talent? No, but he just got in a bad circumstances where he couldn't maximize his talent. I'll go the opposite way. Patrick Mahomes, if he's at any other team besides Kansas City, not under Andy Reid, doesn't take that year and learn from Alex Smith, is he the same guy as quickly as he became Patrick Mahomes? I don't know. You put him with an Urban Meyer. Does he flourish? You know what I mean? So it's what if he'd gone to Chicago? Chicago, yeah. So it's all circumstances. And sometimes circumstances work perfectly for you. And sometimes those circumstances you're going to have to overcome and either go somewhere else to to flourish. So yeah, it's that's it's circumstances. It's crazy, but again, that's what makes sports and specifically the NFL so intriguing. One last uh, NFL related question for you. I want to talk about running backs because Josh Jacobs went crazy yesterday. Uh, 144 rushing yards on 28 carries, scored two rushing touchdowns, also caught five balls for 31 yards. And he did that against Denver's D, which had looked pretty good to start the season. Um, after the game, Josh McDaniels called him one of the best runners that I've ever been around. But a lot of people made a very big deal out of the fact that they didn't pick up his fifth year option. I wondered at the time if that was less of a something that had anything to do with him and more just that's where we're going from a business standpoint with running backs, that that makes strong business sense that a lot of these running backs that have gotten big dollar deals in the last few years have then started getting hurt immediately. It's just not paying off. What do you think the approach is around the league um, and should be with regard to running backs when they reach that uh, looking for a second contract part of their career? As much as I'd like to say that you can't have business decisions, make football decisions, it's just proven, proven. And I always say, let the information make the decision. Do you want to be that 1% that signs the guy to their contract and it comes through? Or are you going to play the odds and be like the 99 say, all right, that second contract, keep it moving. Good luck and congratulations on all your success. Now, where I do differ, though, 
is drafting running backs in the first round. I still okay. believe if you want to draft a guy in the first round, now he's got to be a complete back like a Christian McCaffrey that can stay healthy. Yes. And in now, and if you even look at it, look at what Saquon's doing. Now he's back a year off that lean. Mm-hmm. These guys can be catalysts for you to really take your team to the next level. It's just that second contract is when you have to be buyer beware. Now, also, now you'll get a lot of people say, well, look at even here in, in Pittsburgh, you have Najee Harris, but you have Jalen Warren, an undrafted free agent, and he's, he looks better than Najee. But then that circumstances, because of the way the offensive line is constructed, they're better for those quick hitters, one downhill, just get as much as you can. And Najee's not that. He's a pace guy that's going to kind of pick his holes, cut back. So different styles. And that's why the circumstances, everybody's, well, Jalen, that's why you don't draft a guy in the first round. Look at Jalen Warren. It's not, it's a little more nuanced than that. What do you do with Saquon after this year? Cause he, I believe is still on his rookie deal. We're on that fifth year deal mm-hmm. right now. So he's making a lot of money relatively, you know, $7 million. Um, what do you, what do you do with that? Because he, he does look good again. Oh, easy. You set a number. And if he comes in under that number that you you're comfortable with, you sign him. If not, you franchise him. You got to, maybe one, possibly two years to franchise them and see where you are as a team from there. And while you're franchising and get a feel of where his skill set's going, is it maintaining, is it slipping, or is he still on the rise? Then you make a decision on that, or you draft a young guy to come in. Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara, will they be back with their teams next year? For me, Alvin, I, I could see. Christian, though, it's just... I hate to hear it say that corny saying of best ability is availability, but you love the guy. He's just, he, some people are just not built for this sport. And I think because of his body construct, he's a naturally smaller guy. And when he has to put on that weight to really help protect himself, that puts extra strain on his joints and his ligaments. Then you add the pounding. And I think that's why he's injury prone. So to me, if I'm Carolina, especially not knowing what's going to happen with that head coach, just move on. His contract, too, looking at the number breakdown from a year-to-year standpoint. So this year, he's making a base of $1 million with the prorated bonus of seven five. Next year, it looks like it jumps to eleven eight. his base, with the prorated bonus of 7. Like That is an exorbitantly high number. No doubt about it, especially when you don't know the return on investment. <laughs> I mean, how much are you going to be paying if you play seven games? You know what I mean? You're paying millions per game. So that to me is the, the tough part. Undenying that he is a talented, talented player. And if you could have him on the field all the time, he'd be worth that 11 plus. But rolling the dice, just like a Jimmy G. You like to have him, but. When are you going to have them? You know what I mean? So that that's, and that's the delicate balance that you have to play with injuries because injuries will always be a part of the game. And that's where as a GM, you go from roster building to roster management. And when you talk about Jimmy G and Christian McCaffrey, how do you manage that roster to get the best return on investment? Tell me about the roster building that's happening right now with the XFL coming back in February. Yeah, so we're excited. Right now, we're doing a lot of uh, evaluation of guys that we had in our summer showcases, which are regional combines, and then any guys that got cut from the NFL uh, training camps. We also did a really good partnership with the NFL Alumni Academy. And what they do is they have a three-week program for 60 players that most of them got cut from NFL rosters, and they go through on-field and off-field training, on-field training to help develop their football skills with ex-NFL coaches, but off-field for life skills, anywhere from yoga for stretching to nutrition to financial literacy. So it's a really encompassing program that the work that they're doing on the field daily gets sent to every team, NFL team. And being an ex-general manager, the benefit to this is when you have someone that gets injured, let's say such and such Saquon goes down, then you have to go out and try to find injury replacements. And if they're not on the practice squad, they'd be street free agents. So you don't know what type of shape those guys are in. 
So you may bring him in, and the next thing you know, guy, first 40 you run or first drill, he pulls a hammy. You're like, all right, well, now we're limiting who we can choose. This gives them an access to 60 players every three weeks that they they can scout and know that they're in shape for injury replacement. So we're excited about that. This will go on, um, and then we'll have our draft uh, middle November, November 16th. That's exciting. Very exciting. What do you feel like is the most notably different thing about this iteration of the XFL? The most notable thing about this iteration, especially me being in it last time, would be the focus of the ownership. And the last go around, it was the focus was the ownership of just building a league, 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 league. The ownership now is focused on player, player, player. And what I say, they want it to either be a springboard because Dwayne The Rock Johnson never had a chance to mm-hmm. springboard into the NFL because of his circumstances. Got the camp, got hurt, was told not good enough. So we want to be able to say, for whatever your circumstance, we can springboard you to whatever you needed. And that's even off field, like coaches, personnel play, trainers, performance coaches. We're going to springboard you, hopefully, to whatever your ultimate goal is. There's another part of it is a soft landing. And what I mean by that is there's just people that aren't good enough to play the NFL, but they're really good football players. That's not a bad thing. Well, here's a way to earn revenue for 15, 16 weeks and then decide what you want to do in life. So you're not having to decide what you have to do because you have no income. So for in our health is they play three, four years and then take advantage of some programs that we have off the field for life skills and then maybe be part of that community and get do business and stuff and then be one of those people. So that's the long term goal. And that's the difference between the last time and this time. You if you the XFL has in the past done some quirky um, kind of like tweaks some, some football yeah. stuff, right? So based on what you've said so far in terms of it being player driven and um, treating it more as like a development ground kind of for some of those players to stay in the game, do you go away from some of that stuff to make it look as much like the product that they are trying to play on Sundays in those instances? Yes, we are. It's anything that's gimmicky, we're staying off of away from but the two things that we are going to focus on are player health and safety so any rules that we change or anything you see different in our game is one of two things player health and safety and then fan engagement and i mean fan engagement by when we surveyed a lot of people a lot of fans they were just i'm really tired of the nothing pay plays like the fair catches hmm. kicking the ball out of the end zone on kickoff now Extra points have gotten a little more interesting lately, but most of them, this was a couple of years ago when they're like, it was like 99%. Yeah. So point after touchdowns, we're going to be doing a, a scrimmage play. One point like from the two yard line, two points from the five yard line, three points from the 10 yard line. So, and actually if it's a nine point game, it's only really a one score game. So we're going to do some things with the kickoff to help with decrease high velocity impacts, but also really penalize teams that give fair catch. So if you fair catch it, instead of 25, we're going to bring it out to the 35. So think like I said, and then another rule uh, on punts, the coverage team can't leave until the ball's punted. So that gives more space for return. So that's what we're trying to do. Nothing gimmicky, all in the emphasis and the disguise of football, but for entertainment and player safety. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how this all plays out, Doug. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm talking to one of your XFL coaches um, later in the week on the podcast. Rod Woodson is going to be our oh, guest. So we'll talk about best. his squad. He's what, the no Vegas doubt. the Vegas coach? Vegas coach. Yep. There you go. All right. We'll learn right. We'll learn more about what they're doing there. On yeah, Wednesday. I think we're going to brand the reveal of uh, mascots and names are, I think, later on this week. So he'll be able to have something to talk about. Good stuff. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, Lindsay, thank you. I very much enjoyed it. Take care. All right. That's going to do it for us today. As I mentioned, Rod will be on the show on Wednesday, and I can't wait to catch up with him. I have a Raiders Woodson jersey that I think I will wear for the show. We all got Woodson jerseys when I worked at NFL Network when he was being enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame so we could take a picture shouting him out, and I still have mine, and I will wear it proudly 
as I get his thoughts on teams around the league, the Raiders, the Ravens, and of course, the Steelers. But also, I want to hear about the standouts in the secondary, and perhaps interestingly, the ways that he sees injuries in the secondary affecting the Bills' defense. That's on Wednesday. In the meantime, if you enjoyed today's episode, I would very much appreciate it if you would take a second to hit that five-star button, maybe leave a review, definitely subscribe. The NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. Our producer is Andrew Emmer. Enjoy the game tonight, everybody, and I'll see you back here again on Wednesday. SiriusXM Podcasts.